morning to each of you. The title of the sermon is Clothe Yourself with Compassion and Love, and it's taken from Colossians 3, verse 14. So, what happened here, Derek, before John, Paul? Uh, is an example, perhaps, of um, the kind of thing that uh, can be a challenge in relationships. I mean, there's nothing intentional bad that happens, but, uh, you know, it's just a question of how we uh, relate to people who think different than we do or do things. Uh, are human in some way, or maybe even sin. How how do we relate to them? So next uh, next Sunday is communion, and this coming Wednesday night evening, we have the opportunity to talk with to each other about how life is going for us. Uh, and uh, we call that preparing for communion, council meeting. Um, but uh, this sermon is not a typical, uh, maybe, council meeting sermon. Uh, I preached a sermon on July 3, which maybe most of you have forgotten. And it was from the same text. It was Colossians 3, 1 to 17. But the focus of that a sermon was on the command to mortify. Um, uh, I think the King James word is reckon as dead. Consider as dead or deprive of power is the idea. Mortify evil desires and their expressions, uh, the behaviors that characterize the pre-conversion person that we were. And Colossians 3, 8 to 14 is in that context, and it, uh, it's talking about putting off the old self with its evil uh, attitudes and behavior and putting on the new self with its attitudes and behavior in, in relation to how we relate to people. But I want to give uh, maybe a caution in the beginning here that I'm pretty sure that there's not a single person here who has perfected uh, their attitudes and behaviors in relation to other people. This is not, uh, this is not about perfection. Like, Someone here could claim that they've reached the pinnacle, and I most certainly haven't. And uh, I do things and say things that prove that, and have this past week, too, for that matter, which I won't go into here. And so we all face challenges, and none of us have have reached 
perfection in this. Uh, the main points of this sermon are on the back of your bulletin. So, relational sins to strip off. Uh, the stripping off part. The put off and put on imagery in verses of, or maybe I should read. By the way, I have uh, I have the Bible with me this morning, perhaps uh, somewhat in honor of Mary Anderson, and she gave me this uh, for the date here, April 7, 2019, because she, it's a uh, Liberty Annotated Study Bible because she knew I had gone to Liberty and I had had some of these professors and she wanted to bless me with this Bible. So, I'm using it today here. Colossians 3, I'll begin in verse 8. But now ye also, it's King James, now we also, ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. For there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. So, the put off and put on imagery uh, in verses 8 and 9 uh, is the picture of stripping off clothes that no longer fit. Or they've gotten old and uh, maybe they're rotten, uh, coming apart, and and putting on a new set of clothes that fit better. And the idea here is that um, the old clothes were what we were wearing before we were a believer, and the new clothes are what we are putting on. Uh, as a new person. And uh, the clothes uh, represent the imagery, represent attitudes and behaviors that uh, we put off because now we are a new person, we have new attitudes and behavior. That's the image. So all the items that Paul um, mentions in this list are attitudes of the heart that result in, in uh, sins that can be committed, that are committed by the tongue. These are all tongue issues, but there are attitudes behind the things that we say, the things we do. And so the, the attitudes and behaviors uh, that, that are not appropriate uh, we're supposed to strip these off and put on the ones that are. 
So the first one here is anger. And, and I, I did mention all of these on July 3 when I preached. But, uh, so I want to say that uh, they settled down. The word anger here in verse 8. Okay, the words anger and wrath, as I think about them in the English language, are not what is meant by these two words, anger and wrath. I always thought of anger was just, you know, a flash thing, and wrath was some deep-seated thing that you can't get over. Okay, the challenge here is that the meaning of these two words is the opposite of that. The anger here uh, has the idea of a deep-seated um, condition of that we see red. We see red, but not just for a moment. This is some deep-seated thing, and it, it is uh, going on for a long time. This is deep-seated rage. And it's a state of mind, it's a state of heart. It's a result of a settled conviction. It's not just a happen thing because I hit my thumb. This, this is a longer-term, deep-seated rage. And it's in the mind, it's in the thoughts, and it's in the heart, and it's affected our emotions. And it's a result of uh, feeling justified in this state way of thinking about whatever. Feeling justified and, and uh, feeling like we can't let this go. We can't just ignore this. This is a serious thing. And this deep-seated condition often leads to uh, feelings of revenge, a desire to get even, to make someone pay, to address this injustice. Uh, so a form of the Greek word translated to anger here is used in Ephesians 4.26, which it says, be ye angry and sin not. So let's think about that a little bit. That seems to suggest that although the deep, the initial, maybe the initial deep-seated rage should not be cherished, dwelt on, acted out of, the sense of injustice about sin uh, may be appropriate. Um, but it shouldn't be acted upon in a way that commits a sin. And the words, be ye angry, is actually, in the Greek, it's a command. It's actually a command. Be angry. But don't sin in it. I'm, I'm just saying... Uh, it may be, I think it is, appropriate to be angry about some things. But don't sin. 
not all anger is sin. It depends on what we do with it. So deep-seated anger, uh, and you can respond to this afterwards. Fine. It might be a valid thing to feel when someone is committing abuse or atrocities against someone. It most certainly is not Christ-like to feel indifferent. I'm going to be blunt. To feel indifferent about rape or verbal shaming or physical beating or a mother locking her daughter in a room and not giving her food for several days, which someone told me about this past week. And I feel like I need to say it's nobody in this community. But it actually happened. Uh, someone attending a Mennonite church. And I didn't make that up, and it's true. I'm just saying that it might be appropriate to feel anger about some evils. But the question that we have to face ask ourselves is, what is the Christian thing to do about the thing that I feel angry about? What is the Christian thing to do? And the only way deep-seated rage can have a positive result is if we do something that is Christ-like about it. And I know it is not always easy to discern what the Christ-like thing is to do. But I think that is what we're called to. So then the word wrath. Uh, this is the sudden outburst. The short fused explosion. It's a more agitated condition of the feelings than the word anger that we just talked about. It's what we feel when we uh, fall or hurt ourselves or any number of things. Or maybe, um, I've been driving trailer truck lately the last couple weeks, and I'm learning things. I'm learning things. I'm learning things probably you all already knew. And uh, uh, one of them I learned is don't go too fast and don't get too close behind and, and, and run over people. And don't get yourself where you can't, you know, stop if you need to. <clears throat> so so uh, this past week I'm driving down 29, uh, the four lane between Amherst and Lynchburg. And uh, this happened more than once. Someone pulls in from the right, very close in front of me, and I have to get on the brakes. And I'm loaded. And... I'm not making this up. They went an eighth of a mile and turned off on the right. And I had to get slowed down so I didn't run over them while they got in the road. And I had to slow down so I didn't run over them when they turned off to the right. And then another one pulled out the same way. And I'm not making this up. And went not more than an eighth of a mile and went over in the left lane and then turned off. And I had to do the same thing. 
And, and there was a vehicle coming behind to the left in the other lane. And all of this is just, okay. So now I'll admit that I really was tempted to pull the air horn. I mean, it has one, and I like to listen to it. It's really a beautiful sound. But I resisted, and I didn't blow. And I, I would say this is short-fused anger. I'm not in a rage about this thing, but it's a little scary. Uh, uh, this, this verse, you know, we probably think that sort of thing. It's not that bad, you know. But it, the, the verse does say to uh, put that off to this short-fused anger. Uh, perhaps the lesson we can learn from this command to put off our agitated outbursts is that we need to develop a more restful spirit. So Paul's uh, comments, I mean, the songs we sang about the restful spirit. A less agitated spirit when someone does what appears to be a thoughtless or dumb, we think dumb. That's really dumb. <clears throat> I actually did think that. It's really dumb. Or maybe it's just a human thing. Or maybe it's just ridiculous. But we all do these things. And some of us, we do these things. Probably most of us. And we don't even know they were a problem. We haven't thought about it. But these, these are the sort of things that people get angry about. Now the thought comes to me that some people do worse than get angry. They get in a rage about it, and they go and try to run over somebody on the road because they did something. That happens too. It's called road rage. The next word here is malice. Uh, and the idea is uh, vicious, viciousness that wants to injure somebody, the desire to harm somebody. Put off malice. The desire to be hurtful. <clears throat> the next word is blasphemy, <clears throat> which uh, we probably don't use very often. Uh, it's the idea <clears throat> to injure someone with one speech. And uh, there's several ways this can be done. <clears throat> uh, to slander to say something about someone that is not true. Uh, to, another word is to defame. Another way it's done is to speak evil of someone. Uh, but I have questions about these things. Uh, and you can respond to this afterward. Uh, my question is, when is... When, it is, when is it appropriate to say what we know is true about someone if it's negative? Uh, what, can, what situations would it be appropriate to do that? Is it never appropriate? <clears throat> and now I think about um, being with Mary Sue all Sunday afternoon uh, at her grandfather's place in Stewart's draft, Eli M. Yoder, the Amish bishop. Some of you, you uh, he would be the grandfather or great-grandfather of some of you. 
And that dear man could talk all afternoon conversational life about all kinds of people and places, whatever, things that had happened, and he never, ever made a negative comment about anybody. I have no idea. <clears throat> I just remember that. Julie Keats. He was very careful. And I learned later he could have said negative things about some of the stories he told, but he didn't. So when is it appropriate to say something that's true, but it's negative? So there's another thing I want to say about this issue of um, slander and evil speech and whatever. So I've, I've lived uh, for an extended time in several communities and, and have observed that uh, family units, plans, sometimes church communities, the whole church community can be like this, but family units, uh, people who consider themselves like-minded, uh, sometimes talk among themselves and they develop a point of view about something, uh, which I will call a narrative. It's really a narrative that they share with one another. And often they never have a conversation with the people that they uh, have, have developed this narrative about. They never have a conversation with them to clarify if the thing that they think is true is actually true. Um, and perhaps, uh, maybe this comes under this category of blasphemy. It's the things we decide about other people in other churches and other cultures, uh, people groups, and we don't really know, but it's our conclusion. Then there's the term filthy communication. Uh, it can mean shameful talk, obscene talk, crude talk, uh, but it can also mean abusive talk, abusive speech, speech that expresses a judgment against somebody or a shaming sort of statement. Uh, It's a kind of speech that says, behind it is the idea, and, and the idea that people get from the speech is that who you are is a bad or hopeless person. Uh, this is filthy communication, the definition. It fits that. Then we have lying out one to another. Uh, it's the idea of don't deceive by speaking falsely. Uh, so Ephesians 4, which is parallel to this, Ephesians 4.25 says, To speak truth to one's neighbor because, quote, we are members one of another. So the idea there is uh, don't speak lies about someone because we belong to one another. And it, since we belong to one another, don't try to deceive each other. 
And don't say untruthful things about each other because you belong to one another. Uh, they, they really belong to you. And that's not the way uh, to speak about someone that belongs to you. So then we have in verses 10 to 14 attitudes and behavior to put on. Um, so verses 10 and 11 uh, speak about, focus on the person, the idea that the person who has died and risen with Christ is in the process of becoming a new person. So in verse 10, the regenerated person is becoming a new person person by being renewed in knowledge according to the character of Christ which suggests that uh, part of the way that we know who this new person is that we're supposed to be is that we have an understanding and knowledge of who Christ, the character of Christ who Christ was and is so growth, growth toward maturity, growth toward spiritual maturity, emotional maturity, becoming a better person, a new person, a different person. Growth in this way is rooted, at least in part, in knowledge, in knowing what is right, in knowing what is true, in knowing who Christ is. And, and how he wants us to live. That's part of the way we grow. It's by knowing something. But of course, knowing is not all that we uh, need. But, but people don't grow out of ignorance. People don't become a better person by being ignorant of what a better person would be. Okay, is that fair? This knowledge of Christ is rooted in the truth about Christ revealed in the Scripture. The stories about Him and what He did. Uh, the life of Jesus rooted in the life of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. The presence of Jesus in us by the Holy Spirit. So we're becoming a new person and it's all rooted in knowledge of Christ, the character then verse 11 focuses on this idea that the regenerated person has a new way of thinking and relating to people in a different class than himself. So it mentions these various people, their cultures. Uh, and there were uh, barriers between these people in Paul's day, like between Jew and Gentile. And... Um, some of the people mentioned in verse 11 were viewed by other people as being the scum of the earth, below, almost below human. And Paul is saying that we, we believers, we are, well, first of all, whether believers or not, we are all members of the human family and everyone deserves respect because we're created in the image of God. But certainly believers 
uh, despite these differences, social differences, cultural differences, uh, Paul is emphasizing the need for respect. And so in his day, in his day, there were social barriers uh, between these groups of people, cultural barriers between slaves and free persons. And uh, in, in chapter 4, uh, Paul talks about these things again when he mentions uh, how love should express itself in the home between parents and children and husband and wife and slaves because many other homes had servants. It was part of their culture. So there were these barriers, differences, and outside of Christianity, these barriers were very high. And in the church, in Christ, these barriers uh, should not exist. So that's, that's the uh, verses 10 and 11, the introduction to putting on. So clothe yourself with these Christian graces, verses 12 to 14, and the first one is uh, a very odd term for us. Uh, I'm sorry, but bowels of mercy. And uh, bowels means what it means. It's in testament, such as what it means here. Something, but the idea is figurative, something that is deep-seated. That the uh, a deep part of who we are. Bowels of mercy. And so the, the idea of mercy, the idea of deep affection and compassion, Deep inside us, put this on. Pity and tenderness toward the suffering and miserable. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I was observing yesterday while Mary Anderson was talking, and Charles was sitting across the table, and he was actually crying. And he was like in tears. And, and I'm very sure that her condition. It's been very challenging for her and very challenging for him. And I don't doubt that what there have been days when they have both been frustrated with each other. I don't doubt that at all. She didn't say that though, did she? But he had, if you please, bowels of mercy toward her compassion. Then we have the word kindness, a generous spirit, goodness, kindness, and graciousness, a sweet disposition, kindness. Then humbleness of mind means literally low-minded. A humble disposition, not thinking highly. The opposite of pride, the opposite of a spirit of self-promotion. Of making, the opposite of making even following Christ or serving Christ or serving other people be about myself. And uh, my observation is that 
too often even good things that believers do are about themselves and not about serving other people. And uh, that can be a snare for any believer that uh, doing the right thing is not for Christ or others. It's uh, self-promotion. And we can, we can be that way and hardly know. Uh, Matthew 11:29 describes Jesus as gentle and lowly of heart. Uh, and then the word meekness. Uh, the first idea in relation to meekness is the spirit that accepts God's dealings with us as good without disputing or resisting. That's a meek person. And then the ability to be at rest. The word rest again. Maybe that's the thing this morning. To be at rest during difficult circumstances because one has the resources of God. That's meekness. It's a gentle spirit. The opposite of arrogance and self-assertion. A spirit that considers the rights and feelings of others, and not just my own. Willingness to make concessions. So now the uh, caution with meekness is that it is not weakness. The ability to be meek is rooted in strength or power that rests in the assurance in the assurance that I have am living in the resources of God so I can be at rest and I can be made and I don't have to uh, fight here then we have the word long suffering uh, to suffer long Patience, to be long-tempered. The self-restraint that it enables one to bear injury and insult without resorting to hasty retaliation. Then forbearing one another in verse 13 uh, means bearing up with one another. To bear with the faults and irritants of others like uh, those we live with who are uh, forgetful and do, and do irritating things. Uh, now, we all know, if we're honest, we'll be, we, we could admit it, that the people that are closest to us are the ones that irritate us the most. And these are the ones we are supposed to love. And um, I think it's an amazing uh, human fault to be able to have such deep feelings of affection for people we live with, like husbands and wives, and then uh, in a moment of irritation, to feel totally the opposite. 
But I'm sure you've never done that. But I have. I didn't think to ask Mary Sue if she had. Okay. Bear, forbearing one another. This is just a necessity if you're going to have a healthy relationship with people that are close to you because, just because, because we're human and business. And we're thoughtless. Haven't thought about it. Uh, to bear with, bear up, uh, without resorting to hasty retaliation. Forbearing. And then the word forgiving. Uh, to let the injury go. Let it go. To let it go uh, because uh, because Christ has forgiven you for things that were much bigger than the things that people have done to you. Christ forgave you in the same way he forgives others. Is the idea. And then uh, verse 14, charity, godly love, is the word about that. Uh, it, it's, it presents love as the foundation for being able to practice all of these positive Christian graces. It's love. The love of God in our hearts. It's the, it's the uh, love is what binds all of this together and makes it work. Now, my summary. <clears throat> my summary is mostly questions. Um, how does a person put off, discard his clothes that no longer fit, the evil attitudes and behaviors that Paul says to put off? <clears throat> And I'm just going to make a few suggestions how to put off what's involved. So since you're risen with Christ, pursue heavenly realities, heavenly things, heavenly ideas. What is spiritual? I'm not sure what all that includes. Pursue heavenly realities. Set your desires and affection on things above, not on earthly fleshly things or satisfactions if we focused on all the things that have to be a certain way, um, our desires and affections, then it's hard to put, put off. Uh, do this because you've died with Christ to evil things, fleshly things. Don't feed evil desires and their expressions and surrender them all to Jesus. Give up on the demand that my desires be fulfilled in the way I want. This is how we put off these evil behaviors and attitudes. Don't make your life into relationships about yourself. Make your life about Christ and how you can serve others for their good, not for your own gain. Uh, second question I have is, how does a person put on? Uh, how do you develop new attitudes and behavior? And I want to say, this is not an easy thing to do. It 
requires a tremendous amount of desire to become a different kind of person. As long as we're satisfied with who we are and where we are and our attitudes and are justified in them, we can't change. I think we all know that. I know that for myself. It requires daily renewal of intentions and daily surrender to Jesus and the things that we know should be different. It requires moment-by-moment attention to uh, the attitudes that I have and and the way I express them. And uh, for for a good while, uh, I was doing this practice of, uh, in the evening, I would say, maybe five minutes, and ask myself, okay, when today did I feel angry, frustrated, upset about something, whether it's about a person or an event? And I try to think about that and make a note of it. And then I would take a few minutes and think about when did I feel positive? When did I feel love, compassion, love? tender, merciful for someone or in a situation or event. And uh, that actually was helpful to me. I think I actually made some progress just because I took the time to notice. Uh, So the daily uh, paying attention to my attitudes and how my behaviors are it requires daily, uh, moment-by-moment attention to what kind of habit I'm developing and practicing. So how does a person develop the love that is the bond and basis of all these Christian virtues? How do you become a more loving person inside, deep inside? For the love of God, <laughs> like you live in it, it envelops you. How, how does this happen? So there is no room in our hearts for Christ-like love if we hang on to the negative attitudes Paul mentions. As long as we hang on to them, there's no space for God's love to grow. So I think uh, part of the answer here is, is to give Jesus permission to work in our hearts to deliver us from, from the negative attitudes that crowd out his love. So my last question is, what was it like for Christ to live with and lead 12 to 12 disciples? So, I mean, he was perfect, and he knew all things. And he had these 12 men who, who were protected. Who were what? They were a mess. I really wonder uh, if we were gonna, if we were going to, if those twelve men were here in this church, would we allow them to be members? They really were rascals, pretty much. They were. Some of them wanted to overthrow the Roman government. I mean, I'm not promoting anything here. I'm just saying this. How did Jesus bear up with? 
How did you maintain a loving attitude? <clears throat> Maybe John was the most, whatever, best one of them all. I have no idea. But he, he actually leaned on Jesus' breast, and Jesus didn't even say, Get off of me. You know, I mean, you're too close, and you are such a mess. Don't contaminate me. Okay? How did Jesus, I don't know, it's a challenge, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you that you lived here in our world, and you even lived with these 12 men, and then uh, there was a crowd of women too, and uh, thank you for being who you were there, and thank you for being who you are today in our hearts by your spirit. And teach us, uh, teach us how how to put off and put on the uh, habits and Christian graces that please you. Uh, thank you for who you are and what you're doing and what you're able to do. Amen.